Blog Talk Radio.
Uh, greetings, uh, uh, Noah. Are you there? I, uh, I'm on the line. I didn't know if you something was wrong with your mic. Yes, I didn't know if anything was wrong with your mic, Noah. I, I don't hear you if you're speaking. So uh, hopefully there's a difficulty. Yes, uh, greetings. Uh, this is Brother Warren. I am a co-host with Noah, and uh, Noah is uh, controlling the show, but apparently there's technical difficulty on his end. However, he asked me to go ahead and uh, start the show uh, here on uh, Noah's program. I am uh, Brother Warren. I also host a show called New Orleans Wake Up. And I'm so grateful for Noah for asking me for the last few episodes uh, to uh, to co-host with he, him and uh, with him and Nancy. Nancy is, is not here with us. I understand she's traveling back home in Zambia. So we wish her the best and uh, safe travels. Uh, Noah and I had discussed uh, for the topic for this show on last week to address. Uh, the uh, news item that's been pretty uh, big in the news for la- the last week, and that is the centennial, the centennial, uh, the 100-year anniversary of a race massacre that occurred in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on the dates of May 31st and June 1st of 1921. And so Noah and I agreed that that should be a topic to further explore to help illuminate the uh, aspects of that event for the listening audience, many of whom may be uh, Zambians who live here in the United States and those Zambians who are in Zambia and in other places around the world in addition to other people. And so uh, one of the things... I will be doing is uh, speaking about not just that particular event, but speaking to issues surrounding that event. Just a second. I want to, uh, yeah, excuse me, yeah, Noel's going to try to log in and log out and log back in as he was uh, sharing with me through text. And sometimes here on Blog Talk, you may have technical difficulty. There. So, again, uh, it looks like him being the engineer, the operator, there may be something on, on his end. I'm assuming it could be his mic. Maybe his uh, the host mic is not coming through is what I'm assuming what, what that could be. If many of you have been keeping up with the news, uh, the, the, the American media, you would know that uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, memorial events in the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, commemorating a tragic event that occurred uh, back in May 31st and June 1st in 1921. Uh, You may have seen uh, lots of news uh, features on different uh, networks and 
you saw that President Biden uh, on June 1st visited Tulsa and gave a speech. So I, I like to talk about that. I like to talk about what happened, and then I like to go into the historical context of the time. And then I like to look at elements uh, historically that would have contributed to that event. And then I want to come back to the event uh, and look at issues such as uh, the aftermath, what happened after this atrocity, and the awareness of the event in contemporary times and so on and so forth, survivors. So let me start with the event itself. On May 31st in Tulsa, so let me tell you about Tulsa, about in the state of Oklahoma. In the city of Tulsa, Tulsa was an oil boom town. There were a lot of oil wells around that area. And so it was a bustling town. And the northern part of Tulsa, uh, where one of the main streets called Greenwood was where the blacks resided. It was called the Greenwood District of Tulsa. It was in the northern part of Tulsa. And the Greenwood District was a shining example of black industriousness, the businesses, self-help, <clears throat> And the black people were very proud of that. Now, this was in a very intense time of segregation, open racial hostility uh, towards black. Considering the history of Oklahoma having been a territory, a Western territory before it became a state, many blacks flocked to Oklahoma after the Civil War with hopes of beginning a new life. So in North Tulsa, the Greenwood District, African-American people were very, very industrious. There were many businesses in uh, this 36 block or more uh, radius. And let me briefly share with you the type of things from a business standpoint that were existing. Greenwood boasted a hospital, two theaters, a public library, at least a dozen churches, three fraternal lodges, and a rotating cast of restaurants, hairdressers, and corner dives serving about 11,000 people. Now, that's just, that's just a little tidbit of what that district had to offer uh, in terms of black people uh, having their own businesses. In fact, the area was so much an example of the possibility of, of black people being successful business-wise that it was nicknamed the Negro Wall Street, because that was the word that was used at the time, Negro, the Negro Wall Street. But it was also referred to as Little Africa. In fact, throughout the American South, the Midwest, uh, you had areas of cities and towns where black people were segregated in where they had uh, a lot of businesses. And 
In many cases, these areas were referred to as Little Africa, or they were called Little Haiti, because Haiti, Haiti, the Caribbean island in Africa, the continent, were sources of pride for American black people. They were sources of pride. And so a lot of times when you had towns where you had a segregated section and the blacks had a lot of enterprises, uh, this was a nickname that was, was, was given. I'd like to share with you some of the other things that existed in the Greenwood section of Tulsa. And I'm going to pull out a book called Entrepreneurship and Self-Help Among Black Americans, A Reconsideration of Race and Economics. And there's a chapter that was done on uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Chapter 6. And these were some of the businesses that you had in Tulsa. And the establishments... You had bath parlors, billiard halls. Billiard halls are where you played pool, cigars and tobacco, clothing, dry goods, rackets, secondhand music, furniture, paints, and oils and shoe stores, confectionery, soft drink stores, feed and grain, furnished rooms, boarding and rooming houses, garages, auto repair and filling stations, grocers, meat markets, hotels, restaurants, theaters, Undertaker parlors. In a professional sector, there were dentists, druggists and medicine manufacturers, jewelers, lawyers, nurses, photographers, physicians and surgeons, real estate, loans and insurance agents, private detectives, skilled craft persons, yet bakers, blacksmiths, contractors, carpenters, builders, house and gin painters, dressmakers, milliners, plumbers, printers, shoemakers, and shoe repairs, tailors, and upholsters. Service workers, you had barbers, cleaners, hatters, dyers, and pressers, hairdressers, launderers, shoe shiners, and semi-skilled workers. They were expressmen and messengers, house movers, new dealers, etc. This gives you an idea of how uh, prosperous from an entrepreneurial and self-help standpoint, because at that time, black people there were no there was no social security, there was no Medicare, there was no Medicaid, there was no social services offered by the federal government or state. So black people pretty much were left to helping themselves, uh, and this was this community called Green the Greenwood section of Tulsa was just one example of many throughout the United States where African-Americans in the most hostile, openly racist environment were surviving. And this is a lesson that still needs to be learned today. So on May 31st, a teenager was in an elevator downtown Tulsa his name was Dick Rowland. And we don't quite know what happened in the elevator with this young white lady. He may have tripped and touched her. But anyway, the accusation was some sort of inappropriate behavior. And then the young man was arrested. And when he was arrested, it was almost certain that once the word had gotten out that some sort of black male had done something to a white female, that that would just completely enrage 
the white people in the community, and there would have been a lynch mob. That was very common, more so at that time. So he was in police custody at the courthouse, and there already was a mob of white men that began to organize. But the black men in Tulsa had promised that they were not going to let this boy be taken because what would happen in these, these crowds, the crowds would just take the black person who's supposed to be under arrest by the police. They would just take him away from the police or from the courthouse and then, and then do this ritualistic lynching, which I'll talk about later. Just a second. Okay, now, so the black men had also gathered, and they they swore they were not going to let them, these white people, take this boy and kill him. And the sheriff, a lot of times these local sheriffs either turned the other head or they were also in on these these, these lynch mobs. Local sheriff tried to persuade the black men that uh, the boy would be okay, but the black men didn't fall for that because they were very familiar with that type of setup. So about 10.30 p.m., May 31st, uh, you had the white crowd, and then you had the black crowd of men with their guns. So you had the white men with their guns, you had the black men with their guns. And so one of the white men tried to take a gun away from one of the black men, and then a shot was fired, and then there was some shooting going back and forth, and there were some people dead. So immediately the black men returned back to the north part of Tulsa, the Greenwood section, and they vowed they were going to defend their community. So there were black men who got on the roofs of their establishment with shotguns, and they had set up, and about uh, the early morning of the hours, it was silent. And about 5 a.m. in the morning, uh, are you there, Lenore? Hello? Okay, I, I thought maybe that was Noah. Yeah, I'm having some technical, but go ahead, brother one. I'm here. Okay, okay. Were you able to listen the whole while, Lenore? Oh, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Just trying okay, to wait on the good, good. Oh, good. Okay. So back to the event. So about 5 a.m. June 1st, so the scuffle between the white men that were armed and the black men that were armed occurred about 10.30 p.m. on May 31st. Uh, a shooting, shooting ensues and about 12 people are dead. So... The white, the white people already, they, they're, they're enraged. They're galvanizing, they're getting their other fellow whites together, and they're just getting it to plan to just go into the black section of town and just destroy and kill as much as they can. So about 5 o'clock in the morning on June 1st, a whistle blows. The whistle could have been from the railroad, the steam engine on the railroad, or from a factory. And it was the signal for the white men, the white armed men of Tulsa, to go in and start the murderous 
pillage. All was done, when all was finished, approximately 1,100 homes were destroyed. Five hotels were burned, 31 restaurants, four drugstores, eight doctor's offices, a new school, two dozen grocery stores, the hospital, the public library, and a dozen churches, all the 35 square blocks were destroyed. And about 10,000 of the residents were left homeless. How many were killed? We really don't know. Some estimate from as low as 300 to higher. Many of the bodies were put into grass, mass graves or thrown into the river. I want to read something to you from an article that I've been reading, a current article that I've been reading uh, about the Tulsa massacre that gives us updated information. A white Tulsa resident named Walter Farrell, who was a boy at the time of the massacre, recalled years later how he used to play every day with three black children who lived across the street from him on the border of Greenwood. On the morning of June 1st, young Walter watched as a carload of white men entered the home of his friend. Then he heard a series of gunshots. He waited for his friends to flee from the flames engulfing their residence, but they never did. Quote, it's just too horrible to talk about. And that was in an interview that this white guy did in 1971. I also wanted to read another account of a white person who was a young lady who wrote in her memoirs which she witnessed uh, as it relates to uh, the, the plunder. I have to find that section there uh, which she says. So this was the incident there. So before I go further into the incident, I was trying to find that, that particular uh that particular quote by the young okay, here here it is. A white tosser girl named Ruth Sigler Avery recalled a grim scene. Quote, cattle trucks heavily laid with bloody dead black bodies. Avery wrote decades later in an unfinished memoir. Some were naked, some dressed only in pants. They looked like they had been thrown upon the truck beds haphazardly, for arms and legs were sticking out through the slack. On the second truck, lying spread eagle atop the high pile of corpses, I saw the body of a little black boy, barefooted, just about my age. Suddenly the truck hit a man holding the street. His head rolled over, facing me, staring as though he had been frightened to death. These were two eyewitness accounts of the white people uh, who were kids at the time, who, who one gave an interview years later, and another wrote in the memoirs what, of what happened. So that's the incident. So what I want to do now before I go further into that incident is look at the historical, political, and social context of the United States in the 1920s. All right, do a brief overview. The 1920s, it was referred to as the jazz age. It was supposed to be a booming time in America. Jazz music was just 
in its infancy uh, since the late 1900s to the I'm, I'm sorry since the late 19 teens up until the early 1920s. Oklahoma, before it became a state, it became the 48th state. It became a state in 1907. It was a territory. It was a, it was part of the Western frontier. And a territory, not having been a state, you know, is a place where the people who are called Americans have yet to fully uh, populate. The Native American peoples who were living in Oklahoma, the, the, the particular original Native American tribes who were living there, you know, uh, they, they get moved out. There's another set of Native Americans who were put into Oklahoma. Oklahoma was broken into two territories. The western part was called Oklahoma Territory. The eastern part was called Indian Territory. Indian Territory was set aside by the U.S. federal government in the, in the 1820s to relocate the five Native American groups who inhabited Florida, South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama. These particular Native American tribal groups were referred to as the five civilized tribes. And they were called the five civilized tribes because they imitated the ways of the white man. They had English names for the most part. They practiced the Christian religion. They dressed like white people, but they also owned black people during enslavement as well. These five civilized tribes were the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Creeks, the Cherokee, and the Seminoles. Let me say it again. The Chickasaw, the uh, Choctaw, the Creeks, the Cherokees, and the Seminoles. These five tribes. Well, they were removed. They, the, the U.S. government relocated them from these southeastern states, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and parts of South Carolina and North Carolina. Uh, they were forced on what was called the Trail of Tears after the official uh, law called the Indian Removal Act of 1831. Their enslaved blacks went with them. So they were marched on foot all the way to eastern part of Oklahoma. Now, when slavery is over with, 1865, the black people who are slaves of the Native Americans, they become citizens of those nations. Now, we, we call Native American groups, we refer to them also as nations. Mm-hmm. So the blacks become citizens of those nations. They are part of the tribal councils. They form with the Native Americans, and there is some degree of intermixture. So when you hear a lot of African-Americans talk about their Indian ancestry, uh, that's one example of that. 
And so the Indian Territory, the tribal groups own the land. So nobody owns the land individually. So if you're part of the, oh, the black people, by the way, who were slaves of these, of these different Indian groups were called freedmen. So you have the Cherokee freedmen, the Choctaw freedmen, the Creek freedmen, etc. So that was, that was the distinction between, let's say, the actual Native American and the black person in that group. The black people were called the freedmen. But there was a degree of intermixture to some extent. So in the meantime, Oklahoma is a territory, and black people, after the Civil War, are looking to go to new places to start a new life. So since the Western frontier was popular, it was a chance for blacks to leave some of these southern areas like Alabama, Mississippi, or even other areas in the United States to start a new life. And so the hope of some black people, because you see, you got to stand in the territory, there was no segregation laws in the territory. It was almost as if people were on equal status at this time when it was a territory. So you yeah. had three dynamics taking place in the Oklahoma, the Indian Territory and the Oklahoma Territory. The white people who are coming in from the other U.S. states, they're pushing for Oklahoma to be a state. And therefore, they're pushing for Oklahoma not only to be a state, but to have segregation laws like the other states. The black people who are coming into the Oklahoma area are hoping that it could be a promised land for black people and maybe it could be a black state. And then yeah. the Native Americans and then the black people living with the Native Americans, they just wanted to continue to be Indian territory. But nonetheless, Oklahoma becomes a state in 1907. There was a state. There was a uh, convention, and immediately after Oklahoma becomes a state in 1907, the 48th state, there go the there go the segregation laws being created in Oklahoma. So the blacks, freedmen of the Indian tribes, and mm-hmm. the blacks who came in, all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. They all are looked as one group under the law because the Native Americans are not included as black people, but the black people who live with the Native Americans, you know, have to live segregated existences. The yeah. Indians, the segregation law didn't include them. That, that's so. You had a question there, Noah? Oh yeah, no, actually that's true. So I think uh, let's go ahead and. Uh, take a short break. I apologize for the glitch on my end. So let's play a song just to give people a little bit of uh, time to refresh up, uh, drink a cup of water, stretch. And here is, of course, the great Bob Marley slash Peter Tosh. This is uh, precisely what we're talking about uh, on this show. Listen to this classic track. Stand up for your rights. 
get up, stand up. Don't give up the fight. You preach a man, don't tell me. Heaven is under the earth. You are dumpy and you don't know what life is really worth. It's not all that glitter is gold. And half a story has never been told. So now we see the light. We gonna stand up for our right. Come on, get up, stand up. Brother, stand up for your right. Come on, get up, stand up. Yeah, that's a beautiful track by Peter Tosh. Get up and stand up for your rights. Because black people, for the longest time, we have not done that. So if you're listening to the show, it's the primetime radio show. comes every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. This is your host, Noah Lovell, broadcasting live from the great state of Indiana. My other co-host is actually out of town. Nancy, we miss you. We look forward to having you back. She's traveling outside the country, and she will definitely be back tuning in from the other side of the world, uh, hopefully next week on Wednesday. So most people may ask the question, why do we care about history? Well, history is a clock that people use to tell their political time and culture of the day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells the people where they have been, where they are, and what they must be. Most importantly, 
history tells the people where they still must go and what they still must be. So when you look at the presentation for this evening, we are looking at what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a hundred years ago. Why did that happen? Who, uh, who was behind that scene? So those are the, some of the questions and answers that we as people have to find out and figure out why it happened. Because like they always say, if you do not understand your history, you don't understand your future because the events of the past sometimes may come back to haunt you. So as we are listening to this show, make sure at least you understand that we are painting. This is a historical incident that happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it's important for us to understand history because history shapes the future. We know what we know based on what we have been taught. Everything that we know right at this point was learned in the past. You learned how to eat, how to talk, how to walk in the past when you were a child. So don't mislead yourself in thinking that the past does not influence the future. The past is always present in your mind. So keep that at the back of your mind as we are discussing this show because this is a historical episode just to impress upon your mind, upon your brain, that what happened in the past may happen if you don't know why it happened. So as we transition to uh, Brother Warren, so uh, thank you, Brother Warren. Of course, the technical glitches, you know, sometimes happen, but hopefully now uh, everything is sorted out. So now let's talk about lynchings, because lynchings are part of uh, the black experience. So what were lynchings? What was this part of American culture in relation to black people? Share with our listeners what lynchings were. Well, you know, the, the black people during enslavement uh, were, were property. They were owned by, 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 by white people. So random white people Random white people did not have the right to kill a black person unless the black people were running away. Possibly you were, you were permitted to kill them, or they were found guilty or part of a conspiracy to to rebel or participate in the rebellion. Then those whites were allowed to kill the property of other whites. Blacks were property. Now, after slavery, when blacks were no longer owned by people, that's where we see the uh, violence against blacks on larger scales by white mobs, mobbing, mob, mob violence. And so hanging a person with a rope on a platform as a spectacle in front of hundreds and many times thousands of people was pretty much like a ritualistic killing in the United States. Now, other people got lynched for like lynching would have been uh, a sentence for a crime that even a white person may have done, a Native American or whatever. But for black people, we didn't get the benefit of the doubt of a, of a fair trial. 
So you would be lynched. If you were accused of something, you would be lynched even before there was a trial. You would be taken out of the jail and, and lynched. And let me share with you, uh, this was the environment of the 1920s. This was very well known that this could happen to a black person at any time. What were the criteria for whites to want to lynch a black person? Well, one of the main allegations was that a black man did something to a white female. That was the pretext. Or it was an argument that ensued. Or whites felt that blacks were disrespecting them. At that time, black people had to address white people by Mr. and Mrs. The white people were called the black people by their first name. Uh, there was a whole uh, behavior code that blacks had to act around white people. And sometimes a white person may felt they were disrespected and cause uh, other whites to become angry, and that would lead. But let me share with you a lynching here. There's an organization called Equal Justice Initiative. It's headquartered in Montgomery, Alabama, and they even have a uh, uh, a museum, a memorial to lynching called the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, and it's informally known as the National Lynching Memorial. That's in Montgomery. And uh, they have every documented lynching by the year and by the state that occurred. So I want to read to you uh, of how these lynchings occurred and what would take place. Mary Turner, pregnant, lynched in Georgia for publicly criticizing husband lynching. On May 19, 1918, Mary Turner, a black woman who was eight months pregnant, was lynched by a white mob from Brooks County, Georgia, at Folsom's Bridge, 16 miles north of Vodosta, for speaking publicly against the lynching of her husband the day before. A white mob bound her feet, hanged her from a tree with her head facing down, threw gasoline on her, and burned the clothes off her body. Mrs. Turner was still alive when the mob took a large butcher knife to her abdomen, cutting the unborn baby from her body. When the baby fell from Mary Turner, a member of the mob crushed the crying baby's head with his foot. The mob then riddled Mrs. Turner's body with hundreds of bullets, killing her. Mary Turner's husband, Hayes Turner, had been lynched the day before. Hayes Turner was accused of being an accomplice in the killing of a notorious white farmer, Hampton Smith, who was well known for his abuse of black farm workers. Mr. Smith would bail black people accused of petty crimes out of jail and then require them to work off the fine at his farm. Sidney Johnson, a black man working to pay a legal fee for rolling dice, confessed to killing Mr. Smith during a quarrel about being overworked. Now, I'm going to stop there, but there's a book, if anybody is interested in actual first-hand accounts from newspapers of lynchings, there's a book called 100 Years of Lynching, and it starts from about 1880 uh, all the way to, they go all the way to 1960, 1961. These are actual uh, accumulation of newspaper articles from different news outlets over these years where the journalists reported on lynchings. And I tell you, if you read these, these, these accounts, you would see the barbarity 
of these uh, ritualistic killings and how they were a part of everyday life. White families would come out. The white ministers would come out. The children would be let out of school, like as if it's a field trip, and they would even have picnics. And then they would take pictures of the bodies hanging from the tree or burned, and then they would make postcards of them. And then in many cases, the whites would have a fight with each other to get pieces of the body for souvenirs. This was the climate mm. that, that existed at this time. Well, that's just uh, shocking, to say the least. Uh, when we study history, this is why I, I want our listeners to understand that history shapes the future. And there's a reason why uh, there are some elements within the, the United States who are doing everything possible to prevent this information to be out there, lynchings. Those were killings, random killings of black people at will. And what is more disturbing about the fact is that people would actually fight over the body so they can have souvenir. Just, I mean, just, just take a minute and pause. Lynching people grabbing a baby out of a pregnant woman and people are ministers and every kind of uh, 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 I don't want to use the word dignitaries you have people parading to cheer to celebrate the murder the ruthless killing of these people that was the climate that existed back then so when you look at the Tusa uh, burning down of the city. It also started with a white mob wanting to lynch a, a young man who was accused of bumping into a white female. So lynchings are historical. So we have to understand the past in order for us to know the future. Just like they say, you are what you eat. When you look yourself in the mirror today, the image that you see is as a result of how much you have consumed over time and your brain is a collection of impressions or memories events but your body from the neck down is the food that you eat this is why most people will say you are what you eat so when you look at history history teaches us the events that happened so that we can prepare how to counter them how to put ourselves in a better position to know how to defend ourselves. So we do this show to educate, to inform, to sensitize our people of what happened in the past. So uh, moving on, Brother Warren, let's try to transition to the, to the First World War. Can you say something about black soldiers in World War I? How this may have played a role in their response to the attack on the, the, uh, the events in Tusa. How, how, how did that factor in? Well, you know, World War I was from 1914 to 1918, and the United States did not enter into the war in Europe until 1917. Now, this is very important to understand. Remember, segregation was segregation. 
So black people were even segregated in the military. So approximately 350,000 blacks served in World War One, not in combat. Many of them super, super, served in supporting roles. But, the, but the, the black soldiers who did go to Europe and participate in combat served under French command. They did not serve under American command. And so whether you went to Europe to fight in combat or whether you just stayed on a military base doing some sort of task, you were still trained in the use of firearms, weaponry, and other defense techniques for war. Well, when World War in World War One ended, uh, you had black men were very charged, and there were incidences that occurred after World War One uh, where black people who had served had engaged in, in, in confrontations. With whites, so when the when the massacre occurred, the black men, many of these black men, just like the white men, see the white men also were World War One veterans, and they were actually some of them in the massacre actually went to put on their uniforms to to, to fight the black people. Well, you had some of the black men who were World War One veterans and knew how to use guns, but the white people had more <laughs> artillery. For example, machine guns. The whites had set up machine guns on a hill, looking down on Greenwood. Okay? And so there were airplanes. Now, some say these airplanes were owned by the oil field, the oil, the oil company that you had around Tulsa. But from the airplanes, bombs were being dropped. Uh, you know, you know, handmade bombs and bullets. And so the black people were just out maneuvered with the weaponry. But the point is the black men were who had served in World War One had sought to use those skills to defend their community as well. And that's a very important point. There were a lot of incidents after World War One where where black troops Again, as I said, it engaged in confrontation with white. Uh, uh, it, it was just, uh, that, you see, that was concern of white, that black people had come back and, and they, were, they had this type of preparation for war and that they were going to use it against white people. Okay, yeah. Th- thank you, Brother Warren. So now let's look at the aftermath of the destruction. What happened after the destruction of what others would refer to as Little Africa or the Black Wall Street? How did the whites create a cover-up of this horrible tragedy? Because, you know, this wasn't even printed in the daily newspaper. They tried everything Mm -hmm. possible to cover up. So tell us a little bit about the aftermath. Well, basically with the white civic leadership did was just agree not to say anything. Nobody nobody talked. No way. I mean after a few press after a few press uh uh notices that appeared throughout the country, there was just a conspiracy of silence. No one said anything. And so it wasn't until approximately uh thirty years later 
that it may have come up, and then another 10 years after that, uh, 20 years after that, your first book gets published about it in 1982. So it was it was just a conspiracy of silence. All of the white people who had lived and was on the scene, they didn't talk about it, but they would tell their families about it in their home. And so nobody just talked about it at all. Hmm. Yeah, it shows that it was a concerted, a joint, a huge operation because for something like that to just go under wraps, uh, it seems, it appears to me there was a code of silence which must have involved a lot of people to just ensure that people kept their mouth shut. So this is why, uh, again, we do this show to educate, to inform uh, our people of what happened. This actually happened. This is a historical event, so we want our people to know that it's important for us to know what happened so that at least uh, we know how to appropriately prepare ourselves because you cannot just tell yourself, I don't want to learn about African history because it's going to make me sad. So if you say you, you are afraid to learn about events from the past because it makes you unhappy or it makes you sad, which means you are motivated by fear. So your reality is motivated by fear. This is why it's important to, if you have any phobia of any sort, the best way to get rid of that phobia is to face your demons right in the face. So we do this show to bring to light what was buried so that you know what happened, why it happened, so that if something like this happens again in the future, you know how to defend yourself. So let's transition to the awareness of this event, because I know you mentioned that there was the code of silence. What did people, uh, when did people start talking about the Tulsa massacre in recent times? Well, okay, uh, there was a historian, his name is Scott Ellsworth. He's from Tulsa. He was raised in Tulsa, and he had never heard about it. And so what happened was when he learned about it, he was uh, introduced to a black man who was a young kid at the time. His name was W.D. Williams. And so mm-hmm. he would sit down with W.D. Williams, and he would interview him uh, over a long period of time, and then he met others. And then Scott Ellsworth published a book uh, in 1982 called Death in a Promised Land, The Tulsa Race Ride of 1921. It was published by LSU Press in 1982. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in fact, Ellsworth has a following book that, that should have come out in May called The Groundbreaking. Now, this is what Ellsworth says here, quote, as it relates to the book that he wrote. It had an underground existence. Every year it was one of the most stolen books from the Tulsa Library System. Every year I would send them a new box. So even when the book came out in 1982 and he would send, he would contribute the book to the library, someone would take the book out. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1995, Timothy McVeigh, that was a white guy who bombed a federal building in Tulsa in 1995. 
Yes. And uh, there were many people killed in Tulsa. And uh, uh, about uh, 168 people were killed, and including 19 children who were at a daycare center, and about 600 other people were injured. Now, when that bombing happened in 1995, people kept saying this was the worst act of domestic terrorism in the United States. And that's when uh, the talk about Greenwood came about. People were saying, no, 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 no. You have to you have to talk about what happened in 1921 in Tulsa, and what happened was uh, a state legislature in Oklahoma, a black person, given a journalist called Brian Gumble. Brian Gumble was from New Orleans, but he was a uh, he was on the uh, Today Show. He was a regular on NBC's Today Show. And this Don Ross, who was the legislature, had given Brian Gumble a copy of the book, Death in the Promised Land. Now, at this time in 1995, the event was 74 years old. And mm-hmm. so NBC, uh, for the 75th anniversary of the event, uh, produced a segment about the massacre. And then as a result, a commission was developed. The, race, the Tulsa Race Ride Commission was developed. So the 90s, the 90s was the time where it really began to come back in the consciousness of black people because that book that Ellsworth wrote in 1982 now was being, you were able to see the book in the black bookstores and so on and so forth. So it was was the mid-90s as a result of the Timothy McVeigh bombing of a federal building which had been called the worst case of domestic terrorism in the U.S., that's when the Tulsa race massacre was brought back into the consciousness of people in this country here. Yeah, the, it, it just shows that there was a lot of um, coordination to keep this information under wraps because uh, with the book being donated to the library, but still people were stealing the book. So I don't think it was just a random person stealing, it was the powers that be uh, doing everything behind the scenes to silence this uh, information from getting out. But thanks to this time and age uh, where information is readily available and we are just thankful for the internet, we are thankful for especially YouTube and just sharing this information. So Let's talk a little bit about the the survivors, mm-hmm. the 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 families that were affected. What can you tell What can you tell us about the survivors of this tragedy? What are well, they I, and their families saying? Well, I can tell you that there was a, a hearing just the other day, and there were uh, a couple of survivors. It was three people I can recall. Uh, two of them, I think, they were brother and sister. They're like one lady was 107 years old. The other person was 100 and something. So I, I'm not sure how many survivors are left, but I want to share with you one group of descendants of a guy named J.B. Stratford. And J.B. Stratford uh, was an all He was an attorney in Greenwood, black attorney, and he had what was considered 
the, he owned the largest hotel that a black person owned in the United States, J.B. Stratford. And J.B. Stratford was born during enslavement. He was born in 1861 in the state of Kentucky. And J.B. Stratford owned, he was a teacher, and he owned a barbershop. He leaves Kentucky to come to Oklahoma in the, in the 1900s, like many blacks were, because they saw it as an opportunity for them to be on their own. And you have to understand that black people did not have a vision of integrating with white people. Black people wanted to just be left alone because they already knew how white people were in general. And even when white people were benevolent and were helping black people, they were always treating black people like children. So J.B. Stratford uh, opens up this hotel, and he they said this hotel was open on 1918. It was called the Stratford Hotel. It opened on Greenwood Avenue. See, Greenwood was the main street in that north part of Tulsa. So that's why they call it the Greenwood District. The hotel mm-hmm. was three stories, three stories, brown brick, 54 guest rooms. It had offices and a drugstore, a pool hall, barbershop, banquet hall, and restaurant. Now, this is what the family says here. And I'm going to read this briefly here. <clears throat> J.B. Stratford sat down his memoirs in careful, cursive, later transcribed into 32 typewritten pages. The manuscript has been handed down to six generations and counting. For those who share Stratford's blood, it is a sacred text. Quote, it's like the family Magna Carta, or Holy Grail, or Ten Commandments. Nate Calloway, a Los Angeles filmmaker, and Stratford's great-great-grandson. Now, this guy's descendant, all of them have done extraordinary things. So his descendants went on to become judges, doctors and lawyers, musicians and artists, entrepreneurs and activists. His granddaughter, Jules Stratford LaFontaine, that was her married name, LaFontaine, was <laughs> the first black woman to graduate from the University of Chicago Law School in 1946 and later became the first woman and first African-American to serve as a deputy solicitor general of the United States. Richard Nixon considered nominating her to the U.S. Supreme Court. Her son, John W. Rogers, Jr., is an investor, philanthropist, and social activist who formed what is the nation's oldest minority-owned investment company, Chicago-based aerial investment. I say all this because I want people to know just how strong black people in the United States have been. They have endured some of the most inhumane and horrendous treatment, but they still manage to move on and to try to maintain their human dignity. So let me tell you about what was happening with Stratford when the riot was taking place. Everybody gathered in his hotel, not everybody, but there were people gathered in his hotel and in his manuscript, he wrote where he saw the airplane shooting. And then he saw people outside of his hotel. And then they began to arrest the men and the women and put them in internment camps. Now, internment camps might have been an auditorium. It might have been uh, this place or that place there. 
But the white people wanted Stratford. They hated Stratford because not only was Stratford so successful, they didn't like the idea that he taught black people they were just as good as white people. So someone helped Stratford and his family escape, and he winds up in a place called Independence, Kansas. While he's in Kansas, the whites tried to indict several people. Fifty-something black people were indicted, including J.B. Stratford. The sheriff of Tulsa drives to Kansas to the house where Stratford is staying. Stratford pulls a gun out on the sheriff and tells him to get away from the house. He's going nowhere. So the white sheriff returns back to Tulsa. He calls Stratford on the phone and said, we'll waive extradition if you turn yourself in. He tells the man, go to hell. J.B. Stratford has a son in Chicago who just finished his law school. The son mm-hmm. comes down and takes him to Chicago. J.B. Stratford dies in 1930-something. He was 74 years old when he died. And his property, what he did with his property in Tulsa, he sold it to a white guy for a dollar. The agreement was that the white guy would sell the land at fair market value and give him the money. Well, that didn't happen. So that added insult to injury. So so that was just one example of descendants of one of the the, uh, high-profile black people in the Greenwood section. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's just so sad when you look at the uh, the New York Times on the 26th of May. I encourage our listeners mm-hmm. check out this. Uh, the New York Times did a beautiful piece in uh, on the May the 26th uh, on the Tulsa uh, bomb bombing. I mean burning. Uh, they actually have the figures. Mm-hmm and all kinds of images and pictures. I think they did a very comprehensive, detailed study. Or I think they even have a 3D imagery that you can check it out. I think it works out well if you check on your laptop or your computer, so at least you get a better sense of what was happening. So as we are getting towards the end of the show, with all this... Uh, burning this destruction, how does justice slash uh, reparations look like? What has been suggested or implemented to bring some of, at least some closure to this tragedy? Anything has, has anything, anything been suggested on, on those lines, Brother Warren? Well, yeah, well, according to my uh, research, over the years, you have different attorneys that have tried to to represent the uh, survivors and their families for uh, some sort of, uh, for the city of uh, Oklahoma first and for the state of, um, for the city of Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma to make some sort of recompense to the survivors and the family. I don't think anything has come. And I think recently, I think right now, that's the real big sticking point. And I think this, that, that a few of the survivors just just last week, when they gave testimony, they really read their prepared statements. I mean, can you imagine a 107-year-old lady, a 100-something-year-old man? And, I mean, they're actually reading their prepared. That also speaks to 
the type of education as black people they got from black people because they were reading better than some of the young people could read today. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. uh, that's where that's where the stalemate point is at this point. You see, in this country, there's a fear of whites to create any type of legal precedent where black people are repaid for an injustice that was done at the hands of the state or, or law enforcement because then they feel that that would just open a floodgate of all type of things. And then at the end of the day, the way that white people see it is why would we why would we pay for all of the wrong we've done? We we would just be broke, or we would just. And so that's the sticking point. So, right, I I I, uh, I think that's where. In fact, you know, there was supposed to be a big program organized with celebrities and high top name entertainment acts. All that was canceled, and there were two reasons given why it was canceled. One reason was that the Department of Homeland Security had warned that uh, white supremacist groups may be aiming to uh, create violence at these events. But what we're learning is that possibly the real reason it was canceled, that big event, is because the attorneys for the survivors and their families uh, had a requirement to the commission. See, there's a commission that I told you about uh, that, that's supposed to be addressing this. And so that would have breakdown was. So the program was canceled. And, 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 for, and for good reason, because it would be bad for the survivors and their families to be exploited and looked upon as a spec, spectacle. And then when it's all over, nothing comes of it, you see? Yeah, yeah. So this, is, this was just a terrible, terrible incident that uh, our people need not to forget. So let's let's touch a little bit on on the memory of Tusa. How is Tusa uh, massacre being remembered today? What was very important to know is that after that massacre, the black people did return and rebuilt. They rebuilt that area. Mm-hmm. And in American social political history, by the 1950s and 60s, there was something called urban renewal, where you begin to build interstates. And these interstates actually cut through black sections of cities. And so it was that urban renewal in the 60s that pretty much dealt a death blow to that area of Tulsa, where you had an interstate. That, see, when you build these interstates, you have to take people's land. They call that mm-hmm. eminent domain, where the state could come in and take people's land. And then it, 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 it kills a lot of the centralized activity of that section of that community. So one of the things they have built, it was supposed to be dedicated, uh, called Greenwood Rising, which is supposed to be a historical museum. And as part of the historical museum, there's supposed to be an auditorium where people can come in and and just have heart-to-heart talks about these issues. Now, I understand that in the auditorium part of this museum called Greenwood Rising, there's a quote. 
and the quote is from the author, the late author James Baldwin. And uh, this quote says, "Not every, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced." Oh yeah, that's a beautiful quote. That's a beautiful quote. Yeah, so as we transition towards the end of the show, Brother Warren, can you, I think this is the lessons learned, lessons learned because from everything that happens in life, it's supposed to teach us a lesson. So what lessons, can you identify any lessons that can be uh, can be learned from this experience, especially for African people and black people across the globe? One of the one of the questions is asked about why did the whites destroy that community? And one of the uh, analysis is that the whites were very envious of the blacks. They were very they felt that black people uh, moving up was a threat to their whiteness. So, in other words, black people believing that they're just as good as whites has always been an intimidating concept to whites. And I think a lesson we need to learn as African people is that whether we think we're doing good at this time or where we'll do good in the future, what history shows us is that there will always be others who are not African that feel they need to destroy it or take it away from us. You know, the mm-hmm. late John Henry Clark says, John Henry Clark said, that Africa has stuff that people want, they don't want to ask for, and they still <laughs> have a right to take. Oh, and yeah. so when we oh, talk yeah. about Africa, we're not only talking about that continent, but it's people who reside on the continent, and it's people that live abroad from the continent, whether they were taken away during enslavement or whether they, they voluntarily left. So Africa is black people wherever we are. So if you are a community in, in London, in East London, and it's a black community, that's Africa. If you are black people in Brazil, that's Africa. In the United States, that's Africa. We are looked upon as the same by all non-African people. They see us all the same with all the same stereotypes, lies, and myths. Thank you, thank you, Brother Warren, for sharing this important, important uh, discussion. So we do this show, ladies and gentlemen, to teach, to inform, and to educate. I know some people may be saying, this happened in the past. Why are we talking about it now? The reason we are talking about the events of the past is so that we know what happened because the past informs the future. So what happened in Greenwood was unfortunate, was as a result of hate. So this is precisely give us the context behind the mass shootings that we see, uh, I mean, uh, all over the place here, and black people being shot by police and no one is held accountable. For the Tulsa bombing, Tulsa burning down, 
no person was ever held accountable. Over 300 people died, ladies and gentlemen. 300 people died. No one was held accountable. 35 blocks burned to the ground. Again, as many as 300 dead. Hundreds injured. 8,000 to 10,000 left homeless. More than 1,470 homes burned and looted. And eventually, 6,000 people were put in these intermediate camps. Why did this happen? Envy and jealousy. Jealousy that black people were fending for themselves. Black people had, in Greenwood, this is why it's referred to as the Black Wall Street, is because black people kept the money within the compounds or within Greenwood. They had the barbershops, they had restaurants, they have the beauticians, they have hotels, they had grocery stores. So the dollar would move five, six times within the same community. That was a threat. This is why there was a concerted effort to silence anyone from talking about this. This happened back in, uh, in 1921. The newspaper couldn't even record or capture that. The, the deputies, the, the police or the city actually deputized the, the, the white people of the day to go and root, steal, and destroy. There were aeroplanes carrying grenades and all kinds of projectiles which were aimed at destroying the community of Greenwood. Why was that? It's because of hate. Why are black people hated? There are various reasons. One of them is the racial superiority. Because people fear that if black people are laid alone to, um, to mingle, uh, are let alone to live their lives, they, we have the dominant genes, and this racial superiority might wipe out other races. So there is that fear at the back of their minds. There is a book uh, which talks about the birth death by Ken, uh, Kenneth, I think the, the book, I forgot the last name for the guy, the book came out in 1987, Read the Birth Death talks about we are concerned that white people are not having a lot of kids. Now these other people, they will outnumber us. So what do we do? Therefore, we have to take proactive steps to defend our race. So black people were killed because of envy, jealousy. This is why, I mean, how, who kills 300 people plus and there's no one held accountable? It doesn't even make the news. 8,000 to 10,000 people left homeless. It doesn't even make the news. A book is written in 1982. It gets stolen from the library. Why? They didn't want the information to go out. So some of you are wondering, why are you talking about the past? The past informs the future, ladies and gentlemen. You learned how to walk, how to talk when you were a child. Like some of you, you'll be going to work tomorrow, you're going to different destinations. 
you rely on your historical memory to remember how to get there. Everything is learned in the past. The past informs the present. So, Brother Warren, as we conclude the show, what are your final thoughts? Well, it's very important to know that Tulsa, the Tulsa massacre is not an isolated incident in American history. It happened many times in different communities where black people were driven out of the whole town or the whole counties. And mm-hmm. uh, so, so Tulsa was, the, the, the Tulsa race massacre uh, was not an isolated incident. It, it, it was something that was rather common, particularly in the 1920s. Uh, for some reason, that it was high in the 1920s and uh, 30s, and then things taper off. You, you know, there are counties in Indiana, there are counties in Illinois, there are counties in uh, Michigan where it's all white, where even today there are no blacks. There are counties in Georgia. That's because the blacks had been systematically driven out. Uh, they were called sundown towns. And it meant that a black person should not be caught in that town when the sun goes down. Oh, yeah. 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 So, Brother Warren, in 30 seconds, just to before we run out of time. Yeah, okay, yeah I, I, think I, I just think that I, I just want to be said that this history for continental Africans, that um, American black history should be seen as an extension of their national history. And the history mm-hmm. of the African countries are an extension of American black history and black Brazilian history. And that's how we have to see ourselves. Exactly. Well said, Brother Warren. So thank you for the presentation of this historical piece. We hope our listeners have learned one or two things and always remember that. Greenwood was destroyed because other people were envious of the district because it was so prosperous. Black people kept the money within the compounds. That was a threat. And remember, no person was ever persecuted for all that injustice. So when you see people are getting shot and there's always that justification, they get acquittals and things like that. Always remember that's not the first time you are seeing that. It has happened in the past. So as we conclude, ladies and gentlemen, join us again yet for another exciting presentation next week. Thank you again, Brother Warren, for this wonderful presentation, historical piece. Thank you. Thank you.